In the sermon last week, the more attentive listeners among us probably picked up on some statements that I made to the effect that we had come to the end of our year-long study of the Gospel of Mark. And then looking down at your Bibles, you wondered how that could be when we still have 12 more verses remaining in Mark chapter 16. Well, the answer is that I do not believe Mark 16, 9 through 20 is actually a part of the original Gospel of Mark. I don't think Mark wrote it. I don't think it's a part of Holy Scripture, and therefore I do not believe it bears divine authority as the Word of God and ought not to be preached as such. It is wrong to preach a text of Scripture as the Word of God if it is not actually the Word of God. In doing so, we would be guilty of adding to Scripture, speaking where God has not spoken, and thereby falling under the condemnation of Revelation chapter 22 and verse 18. And I, for one, want absolutely no part of that, and neither do you. Now, I know that for some of you, I've been aware of this for about a month now, after I've been studying and writing this sermon, that this was going to be unsettling for a few of you, maybe for many of you. For some, this will cause you to wonder which parts of the Bible are trustworthy. You may think things like, I mean, if the end of Mark 16 is not actually part of the Bible, then what other parts of the Bible aren't actually part of the Bible? So I found myself faced with a dilemma. On the one hand, I cannot in good conscience preach this text as the Word of God because I don't think it's the Word of God. On the other hand, I can't merely skip it because, for one thing, you would notice and I would lose credibility. Say things like, why is he skipping the last half of Mark 16? He probably just doesn't want to deal with snake handling and tongue speaking. Well, it's true. I don't want to deal with snake handling and tongue speaking. But that's not what forced the dilemma. For another thing, by now, you will have noticed that in most Bibles, Mark 16, 9 through 20 is enclosed in double brackets and is preceded by a statement to the effect that the earliest manuscripts do not include Mark 16, 9 through 20. And if you look down at the bottom of your page, you'll see a multitude of footnotes containing various alternate endings to Mark that are found in the manuscript tradition. Such phenomena in the text demands an explanation. What does it mean they're not in the earliest manuscripts? What does it mean that there are alternate endings to the Gospel of Mark? So what are we to do this morning? Well, I've run into this problem before when I, at a different church, preached through the Gospel of John and came upon John 7.53 to 8.11 in the story of the adulterous woman, which similarly doesn't belong in John's gospel because it's not found in the earliest manuscripts. So this isn't my first rodeo with difficult texts. I've been here before. What I intend to do this morning is to answer three questions related to what is known as the long ending of Mark. Okay, question number one we're going to address this morning. Why does nearly every biblical scholar, and when I say biblical scholar, I mean evangelical 
biblical scholar. I'm not talking about the weirdos that deny the inspiration and the authority of Scripture. I'm talking about Bible-believing New Testament scholars who are committed to the inspiration, inerrancy, and authority of Scripture. Why do the vast majority of them think that Mark 16, 9 through 20 is not written by Mark? and was not originally a part of Mark's gospel. What is the evidence for such a conclusion? Because the evidence must be pretty strong, because taking it away from Scripture receives just as strict a punishment as does adding something to Scripture. That's question number one. Question number two. Why should this fact not detract from our confidence in the reliability of our Bible but rather serve to strengthen our faith in its reliability. Because I honestly believe that that's the case. I really believe that this morning's message should cause you to feel absolutely confident that what you hold in your hands is God's inspired and inerrant word. Number three, what then do we do with Mark 16, 9 through 20? How do we preach it if we preach it at all? Because this is the Lord's Day, and the Lord's Day is not a time for lectures on New Testament transmission. The Lord's Day is a day for sermons on the Word of God. So I would be negligent in my calling as your pastor if I did not feed you the Word of God, and I intend to do that. But how are we going to do that if the long ending of Mark is not actually the Word of God? Well, I'm going to do my best to be thorough this morning without being overly technical, but I, I need you to meet me halfway, okay? I'm going to take what can be a confusing topic, and I'm going to do my best to make it clear, and here's what I need from you. I need you to think deeply and critically about this very important issue. I need you to meet me halfway. Why? Well, first, because what I'm going to say this morning is true, and we are called to be people of truth. We don't need our faith to be based upon a falsehood when there is a solid rock of truth on which to build it. We don't need to add to Scripture when Scripture in itself is perfect and complete. And secondly, because we are called to make a defense to anyone who asks us for a reason For the hope that is in us, 1 Peter 3.15, and the reliability of the New Testament is the preeminent battleground for those who would attack our faith. And we need to have some responses to it. Because our hope is in an inspired, infallible, authoritative word, and we need to be able to make a reasoned defense for the reliability of that word. So let's tackle our first question this morning. Why does every, nearly every, okay, I had one professor in seminary who held tenaciously to the long ending of Mark as the word of God, but he was wrong. Why is it, I'm sorry Dr. Shackelford, I'm sure you're not listening. Why is it that nearly every evangelical biblical scholar rejects the long ending of Mark as scripture? All right, before I answer that question, I I think I should probably provide you with some evidence as to whether or not that is, in fact, the case, okay? In my my office, I have seven commentaries on the Gospel of Mark. Two of them are quite old, and five of them are more modern. The two that are older 
are a, ca- a commentary by Calvin from the 16th century and J.C. Ryle from the 19th century. Okay? Neither one of those two men show any awareness of any question regarding the authenticity of the long ending of Mark. Both Calvin and Ryle comment on these verses as if they were Scripture. Okay? But it must also be stated that both of them lived before the modern era of textual criticism in which we now have the ability to compare the various Greek manuscripts against one another to determine which reading is original. Both Calvin and Ryle would have used a Greek text known as the Textus Receptus, which contains the long ending of Mark. This is the same Greek text that forms the basis for the King James Version, which is why most King James Versions, but not all, will will contain the long ending of Mark without any sort of notation that there's any question regarding it at all. It wasn't until later in the 19th century that the multitude of earlier and better Greek manuscripts, which make up the manuscript tradition, would be collected and cataloged. Okay, so both Calvin and Ryle affirm the long ending of Mark, but neither were aware of the fact that we now know that most manuscripts which predate the text they were using don't have it. Of the five modern commentaries of Mark that I possess, every one of them denies the authenticity of Mark 16, 9 through 20. Let me read you some quotes. James Edwards, scholar on the Gospel of Mark, writes, quote, it is virtually certain that Mark 16, 9 through 20, is a later edition and not the original ending of the Gospel of Mark, end quote. Eminent New Testament scholar William Lane, quote, The earliest Greek versional and patristic evidence supports the conclusion that Mark ended his Gospel at chapter 16, verse 8, end quote. Anglican New Testament scholar Alan Cole, quote, It seems reasonable to see the longer ending as an attempt, known at least as early as Irenaeus, 2nd century, to round off a gospel whose original ending was either felt to be inadequate or had been lost. What then is the theological value of this longer ending? It may be compared with the story of the woman caught in adultery in John 8, 1-11, as an example of Christian tradition which may well be genuine and is undoubtedly early, but does not belong to the actual gospel text as it stands, end quote. John MacArthur, always a trusted source and one who is very hesitant to reject a passage that has any chance of being authentic, writes in his commentary, quote, The evidence, both external and internal, conclusively demonstrates that verses 9 through 20 were not originally part of Mark's inspired record, end quote. And then Kent Hughes doesn't even deal with the passage in his work, but just cuts his commentary off at verse 8. That collection of quotes, now you're just going to have to take my word on it, that collection of quotes is reflective of the consensus opinion across the evangelical world. So the question is, why? Why is Mark 16, verses 9 to 20, almost universally rejected as authentic-inspired Scripture? Well, there are, as you heard MacArthur state, two main lines of evidence. There's external or textual evidence, and there's internal or literary evidence. The external or textual evidence is that verses 9 through 20 simply are not found in the earliest and most reliable manuscripts. 
When the King James Version was translated, they used a Greek text by the name of the Textus Receptus. Okay? That was the only Greek text, or one of the few Greek texts, rather, that they possessed, and it had Mark 16, 9 through 20. In the 400 years since the King James was translated, more texts have been discovered that predate the Textus Receptus by centuries and centuries, and those do not contain the long ending of Mark. So ask yourself the question, if a If a Greek text from the 3rd century A.D. doesn't have Mark 16, 9 through 20, and a Greek text from the 10th century A.D. does have it, which is more likely to be correct? The one closer to the original, right? Logic would say that the long ending was was, was added sometime between the 3rd century and the 10th century. And that's exactly what happened. Now, in order to explain this, I need to offer a brief explanation of how we came to have our New Testament, right? This is where I need you to meet me halfway. Give me about 15 minutes, and I'm going to interest half of you and probably bore the other half, right? But I'm borrowing on some capital that I hope that I've attained in the last five years. I promise I will preach at the end, okay? Now, the actual, here's what we need to know. It ought to be stated from the outset that we do not possess anywhere any of the original autographs of the New Testament books. In other words, the actual manuscripts written by the hand of Mark, by the hand of Paul, by the hand of Matthew, by the hand of Peter, they don't exist, You cannot go to a museum or university or church anywhere in the world and examine the original gospel of Mark. Rather, what we have are copies of copies of copies of copies, and those copies do not always agree. Now, that fact can startle people who have never heard it before, and that's why I'm going to spend a few moments later on dealing with the question of why These are called textual variants, variances among the texts. Why those don't undermine our faith in the inspiration, authority, and inerrancy of Scripture, but actually undergird it. Okay, That is true, and I'm going to tell you why in just a moment. But for now, let me just state the facts. No original manuscript exists, period. And the copies of copies of copies that we do possess contain variations among them. Most of those variations are extremely minor and insignificant. A misspelled word here, a a, a line skipped there, a missing article. One version would have uh, the river and another one would have a river. But a few are major. A few of the variances are major, like the absence of 12 verses at the end of the Gospel of Mark. That's a pretty major variant, which is why I'm dealing with it. We've had other textual variances throughout the Gospel of Mark. If you've noticed, there have been times when we've skipped from verse 34 to 36, and you're left wondering, where did verse 35 go? It's not in my Bible. That's because it's a textual variant. I didn't deal with those because they're insignificant. This is pretty significant, and it needs to be dealt with. For centuries, until the advent of the printing press in the mid-15th century, 
The New Testament was reproduced entirely by hand. In other words, if you wanted a copy of the New Testament, you were getting a handwritten copy of the New Testament. So let's take Mark's gospel and use it as an illustration. In the mid-60s AD, Mark, a leader in the church at Rome, under intense prompting and influence of the Holy Spirit, set out to write a record of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, Mark had been witness to some of these events himself. He had sat underneath apostolic preaching for three decades, and he had spent extensive time with the Apostle Peter when Peter was in Rome. The gospel that Mark wrote and gave to the church at Rome was immediately beneficial to this persecuted church, especially after Peter, their leader, was martyred and was no longer around to preach them the word, to teach them the word, to tell them about Jesus. So the gospel became the substitute for Peter when Peter was dead and gone. And it was soon recognized that this gospel had special significance It was recognized that whenever this gospel was read and whenever this gospel was taught, it was attended by the power of the Holy Spirit to convert sinners and to comfort the saints. The Roman church knew something about inspiration because a decade earlier they had recognized that same power in a letter that they had received from the Apostle Paul, which likewise, when it was read, had power to convert sinners and to comfort the saints. Well, recognizing this God-breathed character of Mark's gospel, the church at Rome determined that it was not right for them to keep it for themselves. They needed to share it. And so they made copies of it. And they distributed it to other churches who did the same thing, who likewise made copies of it and distributed it to other churches. But they didn't have copy machines. What they had were scribes who copied the gospel and who were exceedingly careful to make sure that they copied it perfectly, but nobody's perfect. And some scribes were more careful than others. Eyes would skip lines, minds would get distracted, the candlelight would flicker, and some hearts just simply could not resist the urge to improve slightly upon what they had received. So surely you can understand how variations in the manuscripts would develop over time. As copy after copy after copy after copy was reproduced. It is actually amazing that there are not more variations than there are. And it's a testament to how faithfully the church reproduced its scriptures. Well, eventually, copies of Mark's gospel and every other inspired book, each of which was undergoing the same process during the first couple of centuries, were collected and they were bound together in a book, which is called a codex. The plural is codices. These codices became the standards from which still other copies of the New Testament were produced. But because not every manuscript agreed perfectly, neither did the various codices, which became the standards for the various copies that spread throughout the world. And as more and more manuscripts and more and more codices were discovered in monasteries and caves and various locations around the world over the last couple of hundred years, the number of known textual variants among these manuscripts also multiplied. 
Now, because over time the original manuscripts in their earliest copies were either lost or destroyed, what we needed then was a way of determining which manuscripts are the most reliable and which reading is original. I mean, here's what we're faced with. Here's what we were faced with 150 years ago. I've got, let's say two. We had more than that, but let's say I've got two Greek codexes. One has Mark 16, 9 through 20, and one doesn't. Well, how am I going to determine which one's right? I've got to have some method of being able to determine which one is right. Well, that method is actually a science, and it's known as the science of textual criticism. Textual critics will look at the vast panorama of Greek New Testament manuscripts, which now range to over 5,000, dating from 180, 135 at the earliest to 1500 at the late, or 1200 rather, at the latest, and they'll compare them one against another, taking into account at least four important factors, okay? So how do I determine which of these two is right, is accurate, is original? Well, number one, I'll look at the date. The earlier, the better, because it's closer to the original. So I'm looking, number one, which one of these is earlier? Number two, I'm looking at the provenance, or where did it originate from? Because of the nature of hand-copied manuscripts, certain manuscript families originating from certain regions of the world are more reliable than others. And so I'm going to look at these manuscripts' ancestry. I'm going to look at its family tree. Third, I'm going to look at external testimony. Because in, in addition to the actual Greek manuscripts that I have, I have commentary, ancient commentary, on these manuscripts from early church fathers that can be quite helpful in determining the original reading. And then, frankly, I'm going to use logic. It makes sense that the more difficult reading is generally accepted because it makes more sense that the more difficult would be changed to the less difficult rather than the less difficult being changed to the more difficult. In other words, scribes usually didn't change things to make them cloudier. They changed things in order to make them clearer. When all of those factors, and there are more, are considered, it is possible to arrive at a Greek New Testament that is scientifically proven to be well over 99% accurate, like this one that I hold in my hand. And it is this Greek text from which all of our modern translations are translated more or less accurately. So your NIV translates this book. Your ESV translates this book. Your NASB translates this book. Your New Living Translation translates this book. Okay? The message paraphrases this book. And this book was compiled using the science of textual criticism. So what is the textual evidence? Okay, so that's how we come to the science of textual criticism. Let's answer the question now. So what does the textual evidence say about Mark 16, 9 through 20? It says, number one, that the two oldest and most reliable complete manuscripts of the Bible, that is Codex Vaticanus and Codex Sinaiticus, do not contain Mark 16, 9 through 20. In addition, 
a number of important versions. Those are ancient translations of the Greek into Latin or Syriac or Armenian or Ethiopic and minuscules. Those are later Greek manuscripts that are written in a lowercase Greek lack these verses. Even many of the manuscripts that do contain the long ending of Mark will have marginal notes, notes written by the scribes in the margin. They're known as scolia, stating that the older Greek copies lack this section. So even the scribes that are including the long ending of Mark are making a marginal note saying, but most manuscripts don't. In addition to the manuscript evidence, the evidence from the early church fathers is also conclusive. Eusebius, the 4th century church historian, stated that accurate copies of Mark ended with verse 8, and that verses 9 to 20 were missing in almost all manuscripts. Jerome, the 4th or 5th century church father and translator of Scripture, wrote that, quote, almost all the Greek codices do not have this concluding portion, end quote. Other church fathers, including Clement of Alexandria, or Origen, or Cyprian, or Cyril of Jerusalem show no awareness of the existence of Mark 16, 9 through 20. Furthermore, there is another shorter ending to Mark's gospel that is found in six Greek manuscripts. John MacArthur writes, quote, The fact that multiple possible endings to Mark's gospel circulated in the early centuries of church history casts further doubt on the authenticity of the longer ending. I mean, if we just had one possible ending, that's one thing. That would be suspect enough. But the fact that I've got actually three various endings in the manuscript tradition show me that there was a lot of confusion early on about whether or not this belonged. That's the textual, external evidence. As regards the internal or literary evidence, the content of the 12 verses themselves do not fit with the rest of Mark's gospel. Let me give you five examples. Number one, verse 9 does not follow well upon verse 8. In verse 8, the angel appears to the women who flee the tomb and say nothing to anyone. Then suddenly in verse 9, Jesus appears to Mary Magdalene, not to the women, who then goes and tells the disciples rather than remaining silent. In addition, verse 9 introduces Mary Magdalene as if she were new to the story and informs us that she was the one from whom Jesus had cast out seven demons. And this seems strange considering the fact that Mary has already been mentioned three times in the last 16 verses. She's already been introduced. Number three, verses 9 to 20 contain numerous words that are found nowhere else in the Gospel of Mark. In fact, there are no less than 18 new words in those 12 verses, plus several unique word forms and syntactical constructions. It's as if, if you were reading in the Greek text, it's as if a different author with a different vocabulary and a different writing style wrote this ending, because he did. Speaking of writing styles, Mark's usual way of beginning sentences, okay, he always, it seems, or most of the times, he begins a sentence with either and, and, this is, and, and, or with the word immediately. And immediately Jesus went here. Then immediately his disciples did this. You notice that throughout the first 15 chapters of Mark. None of those conventions are found in the longer ending. Finally, the prominence given to charismatic signs and wonders in verses 9 through 20, does not seem to fit well with Mark's 
de-emphasis of miraculous signs. Mark doesn't emphasize miraculous signs as, as an end or a goal that ought to be sought. And the long ending of Mark seems to, which is why it's a favorite text of the charismatic movement. So to quote from James Edwards, external and internal evidence thus necessitates the conclusion that chapter 16, verses 9 through 20, is not the original ending of Mark, but is rather a later addition to the gospel, end quote. Now, to be sure, the long ending is known very early in church history. There's evidence as early as 145 AD. But due to the combined weight of evidence from both textual criticism, namely it's not found in the earliest and best manuscripts of the New Testament, and literary criticism, its vocabulary, its style, and its content does not fit with the rest of Mark's gospel. It's my opinion that this long ending ought to be rejected as it is rejected by nearly every other evangelical biblical scholar today. There is my 20-minute defense on why I agree with our Bible translators in setting it apart in brackets. I think that Mark 16, 9 through 20 represents early church tradition that became affixed to the gospel of Mark. Why might that have happened? Because as they read Mark and saw it ending at verse 8, they just couldn't resist finishing the story. So, we've explained the questionable character of Mark 16, 9 through 20. Now, I want to spend a few moments reviewing the unquestioned character of the New Testament. All right? As I said earlier, I know that this topic can be unsettling the first time that you hear it. Thoughts arise in your mind. Are you saying that the Bible is full of errors? How can we know if any of it is true? Well, I want to be clear. I'm not saying that the Bible is full of errors. In fact, I'm saying that the Bible is without error. It has no errors. It is inerrant and infallible. What I am saying is that Mark 16, 9 through 20 is not part of the Bible. There are textual variants among the Greek New Test manuscripts of the New Testament, and Mark 16, 9 through 20 is one of them. But what I hope to show you now is that the presence of these textual variants actually serves to demonstrate the reliability of the New Testament. See, the fact of the matter is, and you need to know this, we, that is humanity, does not possess ancient manuscripts of anything prior to the 2nd century A.D. Anything not written on stone or clay prior to the 2nd century, anything written on anything resembling paper, there is nothing in existence anywhere in the world at all prior to about 100 A.D. Now, why might that be? Because paper disintegrates. This is due to the nature of writing materials, whether we're talking about animal skins or papyrus reeds or parchment. There are a hundred factors that mitigate against the preservation of such materials. Heat, cold, fire, water, war, theft, or just age, which causes these materials to disintegrate. Okay? In the, in the early centuries of the church, when they're handling these, these manuscripts, they don't have latex gloves and they don't have vacuum chambers. They, they're sticking them on tables in 95 degree heat. 
So it is a fiction to imagine that we have any of the original New Testament documents or that we have even the first or second or third hand copies of the originals. It just isn't true. But does that mean that we cannot know what the author originally wrote? No. We know by comparing the copies against one another and applying the science of textual criticism. But in order for that to work, we've got to have a lot of copies, and we need many of those copies at least to be very early. Well, that's not the case with any other piece of literature in the world, and it is the case with the Bible. For instance, there are only eight manuscripts in existence of Herodotus's histories, which was written about 440 BC. And the earliest of these that we possess, you see a fragment of the, up there on the screen, the earliest that we possess was actually written 1,300 years after the original. So there's a 1,300-year gap between Herodotus sitting down and writing the history of the Greek Empire and that parchment that you see up on the screen. 1,300 years elapsed between that of Caesar's Gallic Wars, written in the mid-first century B.C., there are ten manuscripts in existence, the earliest of which dates to a thousand years after it was written. Of Thucydides' history of the Peloponnesian War from uh, the late fourth century B.C., fifth century B.C., only eight manuscripts exist, the earliest dating more than 13 centuries after the original. And the same could be said of every other piece of ancient literature. The second most well-attested work of antiquity is Homer's Iliad. Any of you have to read the Iliad in school? Homer's Iliad has 643 surviving copies. 643, that's a lot more than eight. But the oldest surviving copy of Homer's Iliad was written 1,700 years after the original. But what about the New Testament? The New Testament boasts of more than 5,000 manuscripts ranging anywhere from small fragments to complete books. A few of those manuscripts date to within 25 or 50 years after it was first written. 25 years versus 1,700 years. The oldest surviving complete book of the New Testament, Codex Vaticanus and Codex Sinaiticus, date from within 250 years after the completion of the New Testament. If we throw in there all of the ancient translations from, into the various languages, the number of ancient manuscripts runs to nearly 25,000 copies. In addition, we have over 32,000 quotations or allusions to the New Testament in the writings of the early church fathers, all of which means that we have an embarrassment of riches when it comes to texts that we can compare and analyze in order to determine the original. Let me make a kind of an absurd illustration to help you get on the right path towards thinking about this. Earlier I said, imagine I have two Gospels of Mark. And we said, all right, imagine this one was written in the 3rd century A.D. and this one was written in the 10th century A.D. Which one's more authoritative? The earlier one. Imagine imagine that one, uh, well, 
let me, let me stop there and say, okay, so I've got the one and I'm going just off of sheer age. Now imagine that I have 10 copies of the Gospel of Mark. Nine of them don't have Mark 16, 9 through 20, and one does. And the one that does is from the 10th century, and the nine that don't are from centuries previous to that. How certain do you think I can be that this is not original? I cannot just be like 99% certain. That's, that's like 99.9% certainty. That's how we know that this Greek New Testament is an accurate, reliable reflection of what Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Paul, Peter, James, Jude wrote. We cannot scientifically prove the Bible's inerrancy. Inerrancy is a theological doctrine that is based upon the Scripture's claims about itself, its own self-evidencing coherency, its power to convict and to convert sinners, to comfort and to edify saints, and to build up Christ's church. In other words, inerrancy is a claim of faith. What we can scientifically verify is the accuracy of our Greek text and therefore the translations that are based upon it. The accuracy of this text is a scientifically established fact. In other words, because of the science of textual criticism, you can have absolute confidence that what you hold in your hand, so far as it has been translated accurately and faithfully, and some translations are more accurate and faithful than others. It matters what translation of the Bible you use. You can be confident that what the original authors actually wrote is reflected in what you are actually reading and holding in your hand, even though we don't have any of the original manuscripts to compare it with. So as you read your accurate biblical text, as you witness and experience the power of the Holy Spirit and what the Baptist Catechism calls the heavenliness of its doctrine and the unity of its parts and its power to convert sinners and edify saints, you will be convinced that the Scripture is the inspired, inerrant, infallible Word of the living God. There remains one final question for us to answer this morning, and that is, what then do we do with verses 9 through 20? Well, I don't, I, I don't propose that we rip it out of our Bibles. Namely, because Luke chapter 1 is on the other side. No, the question is, should we preach it or should we not preach it? Well, based upon all I've discussed this morning... I believe the answer to that question is that we should not preach this text as if it were the inspired Word of God. On the basis of all of the evidence available to us, it is safe to conclude that verses 9 to 20 were not written by Mark, are not found in the best and earliest manuscripts of Mark's gospel, and were not accepted by the early church as authentic. That's an important point to make, by the way. When the church, let's say the church at Ephesus in 200 A.D., decided that they were going to spend a year in the Gospel of Mark, their Gospel did not have verses 9 through 20. Therefore, I don't believe that we should preach it, teach it, or quote it as authoritative Scripture. These verses were likely added to a copy of Mark's Gospel very early, at least early 2nd century. 
due probably to the abrupt and awkward ending of verse 8. And I will agree. I think verse 8 provides a bizarre conclusion to Mark's gospel. For one thing, it would be strange for a gospel that is dedicated to the bold proclamation that Jesus Christ is the Son of God to end without a triumphant resurrection appearance and with three women fleeing the tomb in silence. That's a weird place to end the gospel. For another thing, the original Greek of verse 8 ends with a preposition, which is as, as awkward in Greek as it is in English, and gives the impression that Mark wasn't finished. Also, the absence of a resurrection appearance is particularly bewildering given how important such appearances were in the early proclamation of the gospel, especially to Peter, who consistently throughout the book of Acts declares himself to be a witness of the resurrection, and yet the gospel that he formed the evidence for, or that he uh, was Mark's source for, doesn't include a resurrection appearance. That's strange. And finally, when we remember that Mark's purpose in writing this gospel was to encourage the Roman church to persevere in bold witness in spite of their present persecution, it's antithetical to that purpose to conclude the gospel with the fearful silence of women and the unbelief of disciples. Like, surely he's got to leave us with something more than that. Well, maybe he did. It's possible that the original ending of Mark's gospel was lost. That's what James Edwards thinks. James Edwards thinks that if you had a, a book, for instance, in a day before good binding, in a day before you know leather-bound flaps, and so the first page was you know Mark chapter 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and the last page was... Uh, whatever the ending of Mark was, it's possible, and there's evidence that this has happened before in the ancient world, that that last part got ripped off or someone spilled coffee on it. This has happened to more than one Bible on occasion. And that it was therefore lost to history. I have my theories as to why God might have ordained that to happen. But that's for another time. It's possible that Mark ended his gospel at verse 8. Stranger things have happened. It's also possible that the original ending was lost. What might that original ending of Mark's gospel have looked like? Well, it probably didn't include snake handling. But it probably would have looked a great deal like the endings of the gospels of Matthew and Luke because the entire gospel of Matthew looks a lot like the gospel of Mark and the entire gospel of Luke looks a lot like the Gospel of Mark. In fact, there's strong evidence to suggest that Luke and Matthew were based, at least in part, on Mark's Gospel. So here's what I'm going to do to end our study of the Gospel of Mark and to end our Lord's Day this morning. I want to take Matthew's ending, verses 9 to 20, which we know to be inspired Scripture, and I want to place it side by side with the long ending of Mark, and I'm going to issue you three challenges this morning. Enter the sermon. The first challenge can be stated like this. Jesus is risen. Therefore, believe and worship him. Mark 16.6 contains the angelic announcement of Jesus' resurrection, but there's no resurrection appearance to verify that claim. 
But when we turn over to Matthew's gospel, we see that Jesus appeared first to the women as they departed the tomb. Matthew 28, verse 9. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. And then Jesus said, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. So where Mark's gospel ends with the angel saying, Go, he's risen, he's not here, he's going to go before you to Galilee, just as he said, go tell the disciples and Peter, go, and they leave in absolute fear and tell no one. Somewhere between there and the disciples' home, they're met by the living Christ. And Jesus' appearance to them drives away their fear, brings forth the fruit of their joy, and what do they do? They go and they tell just as Jesus commanded. Then in Galilee, Jesus appeared to the disciples. Matthew 28, verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. Now the long ending of Mark records the appearance of Jesus to Mary, adds the appearance of Jesus to the two on the road to Emmaus from Luke 24, and records an earlier appearance of Jesus to his disciples in Jerusalem rather than Galilee. Let's look at Mark 16, 9 through 14, or what is known as Mark 16, 9 through 14. Now when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him, and they mourned and wept. But when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they would not believe it. After these things, he appeared in another form to two of them as they were walking into the country. And they went back and told the rest, but they did not believe them. Afterward, he appeared to the leaven themselves as they were reclining at table. And he rebuked them for their unbelief and for their hardness of heart, because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. Which sounds a lot like Luke 24, 33 to 43. What can we get from these early accounts of Jesus' resurrection. We get the fact that Jesus is not dead, he is alive. The same Jesus who was crucified rose again on the third day and he appeared to many witnesses. Therefore, the call of the gospel is to not be like those who doubted. Do not be unbelieving. Jesus, who was crucified for sinners, is risen from the dead and is alive forevermore. He is the risen and exalted Son of God. Therefore, believe Him and worship Him. Why? Because as all of the Gospels make plain, your eternal destiny hangs upon your response to this announcement of Christ's resurrection. Do you believe and do you worship Jesus as the crucified and risen Son of God? The second challenge is this. We are sent, therefore go and proclaim the gospel. There is a commissioning of Jesus' disciples found in all four gospel accounts. Matthew's is probably the most famous. Matthew 28, 18. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. 
Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Well, likewise, the long ending of Mark contains a similar commission. And he said to them, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. Even though you know that I don't think that that's original to Mark's gospel, is that true? Absolutely it's true. We have been sent into all the world to proclaim the gospel to all creation. And whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, and whoever does not believe is condemned. Luke and John are equally clear, and they are equally forceful. So the question as we come to the end of Mark's gospel is, are you being obedient to the risen Christ who has called and commissioned you to take the gospel to your neighbors and to the nations? First, you must believe and worship in the risen Lord Jesus. Then you must go and proclaim the risen Lord Jesus. And that question, by the way, are you being obedient to that commission? That's not an abstract question. It can be answered quite objectively. Let me ask you a question for you to ask yourself. Have you shared the gospel with anyone, anyone in the last year? Are you being obedient to the commission of the risen Christ to go, tell, proclaim to everyone? The Jesus presented to us in the Gospel of Mark is one that must be proclaimed. He is the crucified and risen Son of God. He has died as a ransom for sinners. He has risen again from the dead that we might have life everlasting. He is the dividing line of history and redemption. Whoever believes on him will be saved. Whoever does not believe will be condemned. But how will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear unless somebody goes and tells them? The proclamation of the gospel is not just one of the tasks, one of the many things that Christ has committed to the church. It is the task of the church. Faithfulness to Jesus means faithfulness to our commission to go and make disciples of all nations. Finally, a third and final challenge is this. Jesus is ascended to the right hand of God. Therefore, we should expect his presence and his power. We are not alone in this life. Jesus made that abundantly clear when he appeared to his disciples. We are not sent to our nations and to the neighbor, our neighbors on our own to operate in our own strength, to evangelize through our own wisdom, to operate in our own power. I want you to notice the way Matthew ends his commission. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Do you see what he's doing? All authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. I reign over the cosmos. 
and I am with you. All authority belongs to me, and I am going with you. All authority belongs to me, I'm sending you, and as you go, I am with you. The sovereign and ascended Christ, who possesses all authority in heaven and on earth, is with us always to the end of the age. Note this, as we go. In other words, we shouldn't expect the manifestation of Christ's presence and power if we're just huddled up here all the time, inwardly focused, just doing church among ourselves. That's not where the promise of Christ's presence and power resides. The promise of Christ's presence and power is attended to the going. Okay? Alan, Larry, Matt. Who's the fourth that's going this Saturday? Rants, okay? You have the promise from the ascended Christ that as you go into the jail, Christ will be with you with all authority in heaven and on earth. That's the confidence that you have when you go. As you decide to go over and to try to strike up a gospel conversation with your neighbor, the Jesus who possesses all authority in the cosmos promises that he will be there on the doorstep with you. Mark says something similar, or at least the long ending does. Verse 17, all these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up serpents with their hands. They will drink deadly poison. And if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. The older I get the less weird those verses sound to me. And the more evangelism I do and the more mission trips I go on, the more I expect stuff like that to happen. Because that's the promise. As you go, I go with you, possessing all power and authority in heaven and on earth. We are not alone. We are, in the words of Jesus from Luke 24, 49, clothed with power from on high. The sovereign power of the crucified, risen, and ascended Christ is with us and in us as we complete his commission. Therefore, do not fear. Do not fear the world, the flesh, the devil. Do not fear persecution. Do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Do not fear the attacks of the evil one or of his minions. The power of the risen Christ courses through the veins of his body, which is the church. And we ought to expect that presence and power. That presence and power is what I long for in this church. But we will experience these blessings only, only, only as we go and proclaim and live and die among our neighbors and the nations for the sake of the name. Jesus Christ bids us go 
in the power of the Son of God, bearing the gospel of the Son of God, in the presence of the Son of God, who will be with us, working in us, and confirming his gospel with signs and with wonders. Amen. Let it be.